see the heart just coming in there wrapped in an ice. Uh, it has been paralysed uh, when it was harvested in Bowman Hospital uh, so that its energy stores aren't depleted uh, during the journey. Now this is a, is a short haul for us, it's only from our neighbouring hospital down the road. Um, so hopefully uh, it should be in fairly good condition. Will that increase the chances of success yes. because it's so near? Yes, it will. The shorter the interval between explantation from the donor to implantation in the recipient, the greater the chances of success are. And if you go beyond four hours, uh, the chances of, of success become quite uh, remote. So the actual transplant will take place in a few minutes, as soon as, as, soon as the donor heart is ready? Just as soon as it has been washed and prepared. from the previous uh, coronary. So that has made life a little bit more difficult than we would normally envisage, than we'd normally expect. But what we're doing now is we're cutting out the recipient's old heart. There you go. That's the old heart now taken out. Now that's one of those long sutures. Freddie, we're going to have to trim a bit here, but that's going to have to come later. And I'm going to need a bit more of the pulmonary... Um, By definition, a heart transplant cannot take place without a death. More often than not, that of a young person, and usually in tragic circumstances. In such a situation, it isn't easy for the next of kin to decide to donate organs. Jack is the father and Maeve the wife of Kevin, a 29-year-old father of two whose organs were donated. A heart, two kidneys and two corneas. When we were told he was clinically dead, it is then that it just came. I was actually reminded by somebody. I had, in fact, forgotten myself that Kevin was that way inclined and we then had no hesitation in chatting Maeve and myself. Maeve was Kevin's wife, is Kevin's wife. And we had a chat and Maeve certainly had no hesitation whatsoever. Maeve was very good and she was very proud to be able to do it. And she, she knew Kevin was that way inclined. So we said, we, uh, we'd go ahead with it. He was perfectly healthy. I mean, he, was, he didn't smoke and you know, just had a couple of pints once a week with his dad, and um, he was in excellent shape. Um, so really, it made sense, you know, to donate his organs. And um, it, it made sense of the pain that he'd gone through, and he was young, he was only 29. And um, like people said, oh, isn't it terrible, you know, when they die that young, they, you know, you don't live out your potential or whatever that might be. But, um, he gave so much. I mean, that's what Jesus says, the greatest thing a man can do is lay down his life for another. And in Kevin's death, he gave life. 
There is a prevalent fear that donors' organs may be removed before they are properly dead. Dr Sean Murphy is a consultant neurologist and is quite definitive on the subject. Once it's been decided that there is nothing further that is treatable, the primary diagnosis is known, the exclusions have been gone through, and this examination has been done an appropriate time having elapsed, then the patient is in a state of irreversible apneic coma, and that's death. That's death of the brainstem, regardless of what's happening to the heart. For instance, we know that in a patient in that state who is uh, maintained on ventilation and supports generally, uh, that over a period of hours to days, the heart will peter out and stop. We know that from experience. Uh, so the heart in this in instance is uh, not relevant to whether the patient is dead or alive. And if, if uh, as I have outlined, if that's followed, then the patient is dead. No patient has ever recovered from the state that I've described, not one. And that's with detailed observation, certainly over the last 20 years, since 1968 or 69. Yeah, we've now uh, excised the heart from the recipient, from the patient, uh, leaving just the back wall of the heart here, the back wall of the left atrium, which collects the blood from the lungs, um, is left behind. Uh, the rest of the left atrium is removed. We've excised the bulk of the right atrium, the front part of the right atrium, just leaving the back wall again with the two main veins of the body, the superior and the inferior vena cava, which drain the venous blood, respectively, from the top and bottom half of the body. And we've divided the aorta, the main blood vessel carrying blood out of the heart to the body, divided the pulmonary artery. When that is done, you can simply lift away most of the heart. And uh, we're ready at that stage to uh, commence the anastomosis, uh, the junction, and proceed with the operation. There is sufficient of the old heart left to, to enable you to, f to fashion, if necessary, the incoming donor heart. Yes, yes. Uh, that is the general idea. Um, you, it makes saves time and uh, technique uh, to leave a good uh, back wall of the old heart in position. It doesn't substantially interfere with the function of the heart, and also uh, it makes life easier uh, in suturing in the new one. Well, I had kind of accepted when I went to see Mr. Nelligan, and he definitely point, he pointed out to me that I definitely needed a transplant and the sooner the better that was the way he put it to me um, I accepted the, the man exactly uh, for what he for the advice that he was giving me together put together with Dr. Horgan's advice like so I was really I, you know I, I had nobody to argue I mean I couldn't there was no point no matter what I said or done or who I spoke to they were really the only people that I could um, really accept, you know, I couldn't accept anybody else's word or my own, no matter what I thought, I, I wasn't thinking as good as they were and they had effects and the knowledge I certainly hadn't. I was in there about 12 and while they weren't, you know, fully sure if everything was going to go ahead, nevertheless all the preparations were, were being made. So, um, What did they do to you? <clears throat> Well, I had a couple of uh, scrub downs, you know, where they scrubbed down your chest and that. I think it was three. And I had a shower and the usual preparations then. 
and uh, put on a, a gown and came in every now and then to say that things were looking good and it looks as if everything is going to go ahead. Then uh, my friends were with me, um, Roy. Roy and Mick. Mick the Diany next door and the two lads, my own two lads and Una and so I felt quite happy then, but I was I was certainly uh, I was saying this is it, it's do or die, mm. and that's it. And I kind of got into a stage then where I didn't care. See, there's just an empty space now in the pericardium where the heart has been taken out. <coughs> Long the bakey, please. Okay, coronary suction, please. Have you you've reached that thing, Teddy? Have yeah. you got the heart? Yeah. It's behind us here. You see what I mean? That's a bit more gradually than usual. Yeah, stand on there. Yeah, it's to get in the Yoki. Have you got a few things there for you? The pedal is beside me. What are you doing here? I'm just um demarcating between the two of them to make okay. the case. Oh, where's can the heart? I have the heart now. Oh gosh. That's an enormous thing. Well, I was delighted. I was really delighted because I knew at this stage, I knew up to that he was so bad, there was no hope from him at all. I knew that he was going to die in any case in that year. And then when he rang to say that there's a possibility that he'd get a transplant, I was elated. I couldn't believe it, you know, that there was a hope, there was a chance. So then it was a matter of you know, going in to see the doctor, see what it would entail, and then he said... It was the 11th of February when they told us that he could have a heart transplant, and then he couldn't say how long this could be. It could, ha it could be months. It might never happen. He mightn't be lucky enough to get a donor that would suit. So then the 1st of March, one came along, as quick as that, and... It, See, it all happened very quick. We were lucky. We were rather surprised then that um, after the um, discussion with him, I was called in the following ch um, Monday. Was it Monday or Tuesday? I can't remember really. Um, anyway, and uh, I was operated on there and then, um, called in it. We went in at half eleven. And uh, it was all rush and go. I didn't really have time to think. And as I said, you don't, because you're thrown into one bath and out of it and into another one and you're scrubbed down and you're shaved and whatever else they have to do with you. And then they sort of tranquilize you prior to going into the theatre. And uh, that's really all I remember. Once I went into the theatre, then they just gave me a nick and I remember nothing else. At the moment, the two surgeons are just preparing the donor heart to go into uh, the recipient. Donor's heart, which is lying on the side of the chest there, to the uh, where we've cut the recipient's heart out to the bit of his heart that we've left behind. The new heart has just been placed into the chest cavity. Thank you. Transplantation began over 20 years ago, but until the 1980s, it was very much an experimental procedure. About four or five years ago, however, we became convinced that the results being obtained in those centres which had major experience of transplantation were sufficiently good to justify embarking on a transplantation programme here. And when I say that between 75 and 80 percent of people who receive a heart transplant will be alive five years later, I think you'll understand how good that is. The second thing that changed 
was that drugs became available which allowed individuals who had a transplant to have a normal or very near normal quality of life. And this has been a real revolution in the management of patients with otherwise terminal heart disease, a condition which carries a much worse prognosis than most cancers. Now, how do cardiologists like yourself select patients for a heart transplant? Well, uh, the first thing we have to do is define precisely the disease from which the patient is suffering. And that's done by clinical evaluation, standard clinical examination, by ordinary x-rays, by electrocardiography, by non-invasive techniques such as echocardiography and isotope testing, and ultimately by cardiac catheterization and angiography, an x-ray procedure designed to show the anatomy of the defects from which the heart is, is uh, from which the patient is suffering. In the 22 years since Christian Bernard first transplanted a human heart in December 1967, great advances have been made both in operational technique and diagnostic technology, not least in the field of angiography. Dr. Brian Morrer is one of a number of cardiologists for whom angiography is now routine procedure, as you can hear. 20 years ago, it would have been unthinkable to do this because uh, we believed at that time that if you t went near the heart in the stages, in the months immediately following a heart attack, you would cause instant death. Okay, centre that, please. Take a deep breath in, sir. And out. That was before we had learned how to control the rhythm. Deep breath in again. Okay, Deirdre, will you give me a little more lateral than that, please? Here, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. I just want to do another test to see how much I need. Now, when I give you an injection, a power injection in a minute, take a big breath in, by the way, would you? Take a deep breath in. Hold it there, good man. Right, that'll be all right. Give me 30 or 12, please. When I give you a power injection in a minute, you're going to get a hot flushing feeling through the whole of your body, right down to your toes, fingers, every part here. It will pass in about five seconds. There you can breathe. Okay. All right. And uh, you take a drink. What? You take a drink. Okay. It's been described as having instant intravenous whiskey, but it's not whiskey. Well, some people like the effect. Uh, catheterization itself allows for a, an assessment of the degree of damage which has been done to the heart uh, by the disease to which it's been subjected. And we can put the whole picture together when we have all that information and decide on what uh, particular treatment is appropriate to the individual. And out of all the patients that we assess, we'll find a small number to whom we can offer nothing other than a transplant. Now it's quite warm here, folks. We do have some ice, do we? Scissors, please. Scissors. You have to keep modelling it as you go along now, because they, they seldom are an exact match in size, and you just have to mould one of them so that the other one fits nicely. Would you have a problem with the fact that this heart is... The donor heart is much bigger than the Yes, so you, heart. you have to match them, you have to cut them to size. And all the time, try to keep it cold, keep it as cool as possible. Some more slush, please. Yeah. 
tiny bit. But as they'll all tell you here, it's completely foreign to my nature. I was actually born on Whit Sunday. My mother always felt that I should have had the gift of tongues. <laughs> Those who knew me were in no doubt as to whether I had it, but they weren't the ones I think my poor mum had envisaged. <laughs> Dr. McSullivan, what is the anaesthetist's role in a transplant operation like this one? Well, the, patient, the anaesthetist has to basically sedate the patient on uh, entering the theatre suite because the patients are very anxious even though they've received a pre-medication in the ward approximately 90 minutes pre-operatively or pre-scheduled to take off time. And we sedate the patient, reassure them that what we're about to do is um, uh, exactly what we are about to do at that time. We give the intravenous sedation in the form of uh, a sedative like diazepam like drug at which state they are sedated but cooperative and we administer uh, this via an intravenous line which is put into a forearm with local anaesthetic we put in one other line before we anaesthetize the patient which is into uh, an artery in the forearm which measures the arterial blood pressure directly and following this we will attempt to induce the patient to induce anaesthesia both intravenously and with some inhalation agents via face mask. And at this time, the patient is unaware of what is going on and will not remember it. Once Won't remember anything until they wake up subsequently. Uh, subsequently. Does your uh, particular job uh, intensify after the operation? Yes, indeed. And um, particularly in transplant patients, they are very, very sick for several days post-operatively and uh, we have to watch from minute to minute everything that's happening, the different readings that we take from all the lines that we have um, inserted preoperatively. And we may have to administer various kinds of drugs um, which will alter very s slightly different parameters within these readings, which are all aimed at keeping the transplanted heart in its optimal condition until it is uh, stabilised two, three or even five days postoperatively. I, I think, honestly, I think June worried more herself than I did, but mm. then there again, she had an awful lot more to put up with. She'd me to uh, <laughs> live with at the same time. Uh, I must certainly say she's been absolutely marvellous through it all. She's been great, you know, and um, the two children too have been been absolutely wonderful. She's saying here, <laughs> self-mocking, I suppose, <laughs> is the best way to put it. But seriously, June, that night of the operation, it was a very lonely place in the corridor, oh, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, it was. It was really. I couldn't describe the way it was. You know, you know what's happening and yet you don't believe it's happening, you know. You just, you're sitting there and people are going, you know, rushing about and there's loads going on, you know it's all happening and yet you don't believe it and, up t you know, you're, you're sitting there and you don't know until the very last minute, first of all, if, if the heart is going to be compatible with, you know, that would suit him. So, I believe now, I'm not too sure, but they open them and do all this sort of thing. And they, no, they prepare you, don't they? Mm. And then it's not to the last minute that Betty said, well, you would get that the heart would suit, you know. So you're sitting there in this corridor and you're really it's a lot. It's a lonely time. It really is, you know, and it's and then you you don't think you go numb. I did. You go numb. I was lucky, you see, because Una, her husband, was done the day before, and 
she was sitting waiting for her, you know, with her husband. So she was able to tell me all that was going to happen. Oh, she was marvellous. She was really great to me, you know. Um, my sisters came up to me and I had a very good neighbour who had come in with us when we, when we were going in with Pat, um, who was Patty Cabinet and Phil and Roy, another two friends of ours and that. They were with us and they took me out for a drink. And we were there for about an hour. We went to the Art of Conan Doyle and we came back. But it was like you were on a high, all excited and frightened at the same time. And, at, you know, at one stage you, you were sitting out in the corridor, smoking away after being off the cigarettes. And we were out, we had to sit on the other corridor because you couldn't smoke on the corridor where the cardiac unit is. So I just was afraid they'd forgotten about me and I'd run down to the sea and Betty McCluskey came out a few times and was, you know, everything was all right. Okay, we're just about to start the last, uh, and that's our joining between the uh, donor aorta and the recipient aorta and then we'll get a new heart beating. Stitch, please. Same again. Robert Sean. Times. So we're 45 minutes. We need events to. We have a vent line. Jill? Yes. The yes, vent. Yes. Okay, we'll be giving it to you in a moment. And we want somebody to put the head of the table down in a few moments. The heart is going to be full of air. And when it starts to beat, we don't want that to be pushed out into the major vessels and up to the brain, which cause a lot of damage. So what do you do to prevent that? Well, we'll meticulously empty it. We'll put a special tube in the left side now in a few moments. And also we'll do all sorts of other things. We'll massage the chambers to get any air out and we'll drop the head of the table so that if any was ejected, that hopefully it would go not into the head, but towards the uh, feet. It's a fairly pious aspiration, that latter one, but it, it's sanctioned by usage. Whether it actually works or not is a fairly moot point. The blood is now circulating yes, within the, the donor's within heart. The, the donor's heart. heart. The donor's own coronary arteries are now being perfused and the heart is starting to beat. And in fact, we have to stop it beating before we're ready to have it beating just for that uh, possibility that I mentioned a moment ago, that air might be forced out into the circulation. Okay. Now, I'm holding it actually in my hand, and we're trying to, to make sure that all this air... Yeah, seems grand, actually. ...beating itself now, but it's still quite irregular and quite irritable, um, which you always find after this length of time without uh, being attached to a circulation, without being perfused by naturally circulating blood. Now it is being perfused again, and all the acid metabolites, the acid products of the, the workings of the cell that collected when it wasn't being used, when it was just being stored and transported, are being washed out. And that leads to a certain amount of irritability of the um, heart muscle as it contracts. So occasionally we have to stabilize the rhythm with an electric shock, which is a process called defibrillation. What we're allowing to happen now is the temperature of the body to be heated back up by the heart-lung machine through the heat exchanger in the heart-lung machine. 
by Ms. Macken, the perfusionist there. Uh, how long would you leave it on bypass? Until we're happy that the circulation will uh, is stable and holding on its own. We'd certainly be aiming for two hours plus. But we've been nearly an hour already. How long will we bypass? Just one hour and two minutes now, and the heart is beating and the astomosis are completed. At, at what stage? When did, we, when did we take off the clamp? Uh, about 10 minutes ago. Yeah. So it was only cross-clamped. It was only on the heart-lung machine for 50 minutes before all the uh, junctions, the anastomosis, the joins, the seams, the edges, whatever, were, were uh, completed. So now we want to get the heart back into equilibrium to allow it to adjust to its... Um, new surroundings and to beat properly. The recipient patient this afternoon, once we knew that there was going to be uh, the possibility of a transplant, he was given his loading doses of cyclosporin and a drug called azathioprine or Imuran for his trade name, which are two of the three um, anti-rejection drugs that we use. The third one that we use is steroid, um, in this case methylprednisolone, in fairly high dose and that's given as the uh, cross clamp comes off the aorta and the heart begins to beat. And all of these are designed uh, to help the body, um, or to stop the body rejecting the organ that has just been transplanted. Because they're, they're not as uh, matched as accurately as kidneys are, because they can't be, because you don't have the time. So we rely really basically on the patient's own blood group and that the donor's blood group and that they are compatible, as they are in this case. And it doesn't seem uh, for hearts to be as critical as it does for kidneys. The drug cyclosporin has greatly enhanced the chances of survival for transplants. It is one of a number of immunosuppressants which the patients are given. Because of the quantity of drugs which patients have to take post-operatively, most of them experience nightmares in the immediate post-operative period. The nightmares vary in style and duration. Oh, some of them were a bit uh, ridiculous. Um, well, as I say, some of them were frightening. Uh, I vaguely remember being charged with murder. Um, People in Taylor Mayland. Yes, I was floating then. I remember being in a, um, a, a lorry. And the lorry had drifted out to sea. And we went right along the coast at Bray. All right along. And there were various people <laughs> shooting at us and firing arrows at us, firing guns. Uh, and everybody was, was 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 being shot except myself. Like I'd say, it's my turn next now. It has to be me next. And I was escaping all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> things like that, you know. Um, and you had one did about telephones, that, didn't you? I did. The telephones got wrapped around a ventilator. I had two handsets. That was wrapped around a ventilator lid in my, uh, in, uh, around the lid. I was also in Mr. Nelligan's office in Black Rock, and we were ferreting in the office, which was unbelievable. Like there was uh, <laughs> uh, mounds of uh, clay, typical mountain terrain where I used to spend every second Sunday with, with my friend. And we were able to go ferreting in, in Mr. Nelligan's <laughs> office. I'm sure he wouldn't. <laughs> I don't never think he'd approve. He wouldn't approve of ferrets <laughs> running around his office. 
That's a fact, and he was there as large as life. What are we doing now? Where are we now? 30? Better come up another degree then. Too. Now I was thinking if I come up a little bit more, I can let um, Roisin put in Earth One by taking out the SVC line. Assisting in the operation with Messrs Nelligan and Wood was Ireland's first woman cardiothoracic surgeon, Eilish McGovern. The next major hurdle is to get the patient off the heart lung machine. At the moment, the donor heart is working very well, but it's still being assisted to a great extent by the heart-lung machine. So it hasn't been tested fully yet. So the, the next major step is when we gradually increase the amount of work that the donor heart has to do, and at the same time gradually decrease the amount of assist that it's getting from the heart-lung machine until this is totally turned off and the new heart is beating on its own. And it's very quickly um, seen then whether the blood pressure stays up and the, the heart whether it can do the work that it's supposed to do. So that is the next major obstacle we have to overcome here in the theatre now. Before the patient is connected to the heart lung machine, they're given heparin, which is a, a drug to stop the coagulation of the blood, right? Mm -hmm. And it means that everything doesn't clot in the tubing and in the heart lung machine during the course of the procedure. And until that was discovered, in fact, that you could do this and you could render the blood incoagulable for a while, this kind of surgery wouldn't have been possible. But at the end of the operation, this drug has to be reversed. And it's reversed by giving another drug called protamine sulfate. But when it's given, it drops the blood pressure itself. And that's what Mr. Wood was alluding to there when it was given uh, to reverse the process, because the patient is now disconnected from the heart-lung machine, uh, that the pressure dropped. But we're now generating a good blood pressure there, um, which is approximating really to normal. Uh, the normal blood pressure is reckoned to be 120 over 80. Now you've got 115 over 80, 118 over 80. You can't really do much better than that. And then this uh, pressure line on the monitor here is recording the pressure in the artery to the lungs. And again, that's perfectly acceptable levels of uh, performance. So this all tells us that the implanted heart is functioning very well. What is the next critical stage? Well, we close him now, he'll go back to the intensive care unit and he'll be monitored very closely over the next 24, 48 hours. It'll be barrier nursing and nobody will be allowed near him unless they're masked and gowned and scrubbed and washed uh, because this is the time when the drugs to suppress your um, immune response have been given. This is the time at which they're most vulnerable. This is and the other drugs. And Imuran and steroids and that they're now most susceptible to infection and this is the time over the next 48 hours that the risk of this is greatest because their immune system is totally has been gone. suppressed uh, to a very large degree yeah so they could catch it like cold the, 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 the simplest cold uh, herpes infection on the lip or something like that can spread and become a, a really malignant infection and we've given the steroids now as he came off the heart lung machine so everything at this stage is looking good. Looking excellent at present, yeah. yeah. How long more have we got in theatre? It's now nine o'clock. An hour, maybe. That's just to close the chest Close cavity. the chest and tidy everything up. Yeah, and then back to the um, cubicle in the intensive care unit where the nurses stay with them all night and one of the doctors. These are the two special cubicles that were specially right, built, built for this purpose.
The recipient's excised heart has been laid aside and is then examined by the surgeons. The massive damage to the heart bears testimony to the accuracy of the diagnosis and the necessity for the operation. Well, this particular uh, explanted heart shows uh, all the signs of a major coronary uh, extending over approximately half of the left-sided pump, the left ventricle. Uh, the scar of the coronary has become very thin-walled, and we call it an aneurysm. And this has resulted in the whole left side of the heart becoming very flabby and causing uh, persistent heart failure. And this was the indication for doing the transplant on this particular patient. In other words, the muscular strength had left the heart. Is that the, muscle, the, the muscle itself had been damaged uh, totally by the coronary, uh, extending over, you can see here, extending over at least uh, half of the uh, global surface of the uh, left-sided pump. It just looks as if it's been bruised and the bruises are on the exterior. Uh, that's correct, yes. And you could also see the, the white scar formation here, which is really quite extensive. The heart altogether is exceptionally fatty, uh, again, which would go along with the uh, high-fat, animal-fat, uh, high-meat diet that uh, most uh, Irish people eat. Uh, it should, in fact, be much more muscular and much less uh, fat uh, on it. You can see up here that this is a much more normal portion here, and this is indeed a a normal functioning part of, of, of this particular heart. So that's why the prognosis for this particular patient was extremely bad? It was extremely bad, yes. It, it was, the prognosis was less than a year. So the only way out was to take this heart out and, and if possible, give him a new one? That's correct, yes. And uh, give him a, a new uh, pumping chamber. And to do that, we, in fact, we had to replace both the right-sided pumping chamber and the left-sided pumping chamber. An ordinary bypass just wouldn't have been good enough? An ordinary bypass would, uh, would not have uh, repaired uh, the damaged muscle. Uh, the damaged muscle uh, would have to be replaced. It's very similar uh, to an engine of a car having only two cylinders when it should have four, and you just replaced a carburetor system. In fact, you needed a new engine, not a new carburetor. So that's what you've given them tonight? Exactly. At this stage, it's looking satisfactory. Uh, obviously, a long way to go, but everything seems to be functioning well. The heart seems to be functioning well. Body seems to be uh, being well perfused by the new heart because the temperatures are holding well and the kidneys are working well. Um, and uh, we're pretty happy. Pressure's down a little bit now, but that we, we see quite frequently at this stage. Why are you so interested in the uh, urinary output? Because it's an index of the perfusion of the kidneys, which in itself is an index of the perfusion of the rest of the body with blood. And if that's working well, it usually means that the rest of the system is working well uh, also. The clock on the wall in the Matter Hospital Theatre now reads, just coming up to 20 to 10, the transplant operation started at half past six. So just three hours and ten minutes after the operation started, it is complete and the nurses and the rest of the surgical team are just preparing the patient now to go the ten yards from the theatre to the intensive care unit. This is the inside the new special patient 
intensive care unit for transplant patients. Less than a minute after the patient has left theatre, he is now installed in this special intensive care cubicle for transplant patients. Nobody will be allowed in or out of here without being properly sterilised and gowned. Meanwhile, outside of the intensive care unit, the principal surgeon, Morris Nelligan, has just gone down to a small room at the end of this long corridor of St. Celia's Ward in the Matter Hospital and has gone in to talk to the family of the patient. So about half past ten, they wheel him out of the theatre and into the um, isolation unit. And um, Mr Nelligan told me, you know, talked to Woods. So Mr Woods said everything was great and to stay till about twelve. So they were there all that time, those doctors. It was, um, they didn't go till, you know, about half eleven. I seen them going home at half eleven. They were there the next morning, you know, on call all the time. You never think of them really, but they work so hard. It's unbelievable the hours they walk. Things do not always go according to plan. And in Pat's case, there were post-operative complications. And on the Wednesday, the kidney shut down. And they didn't really start working again until, um, I think it was Holy Week, that he started to, his kidney started working anyway, properly, and then he still wasn't getting rid of the toxins. So they used to have to come over from Beaumont to do the hemodialysis with the machine, the kidney machine. First they'd done it every day, and then every second day. And... Dr. Donahoe, as Pat said, he was a lovely man. He kept telling me they would definitely work again. And had it have been a woman, the other dialysis may have worked. But a man is bigger and it didn't, you know, but eventually the kidneys did work. But it took a long time. He was in the intensive care unit from the 29th of February until Holy Week of um, April. You know, there was all that length. It was about a month. Eventually, he was fit enough to leave the isolation unit, much to the joy of his family and the satisfaction of the transplant team. They did give you confidence. They didn't, like, they were able to give you confidence that in them, in their ability to look after Mm. everything. And when he did come out of the unit that that day, we were all crying. Nurses were crying, he was crying, I was crying. My sister now, she had come up just to be with me that day because all the time he was in... It was always friends, neighbours or my family were up with me because I'd been in the hospital so long and I mightn't be in with them. The question of donors and organ donation is still a sensitive one. But the recipients and their families have a lasting gratitude and esteem for their donors. It may not be an effusive one, but it is strong and deeply felt. It's very difficult to say really how I feel. Um, There's not a day honestly goes by that you don't think of the donor you know that their parents or wife or whoever it may have been who donate helped donate you know but um i find it a terrible difficult thing for anyone to to be able to say i'll give 
the organs of my child or my husband. And I hope I'd have the courage to do it when it, if it happens, you know, myself. But um, I can't say, it, I couldn't describe how grateful I am to the person, you know. Recently, uh, just there before Christmas, uh, I was at a social function and um, I was up dancing, feeling great, like, you know, well into one o'clock in the morning and uh, the band was flying at this stage and all of a sudden um, it just dawned on me that there was a chap somewhere um, in a grave, like, you know, and I was there on account of his, uh, his heart being donated. And um, I thought life was very strange. For the donor's family, there is satisfaction in knowing that in death there is life. In this case, five people benefited from the donation. One got a new heart, two more new kidneys, while two others received the gift of sight. Maeve is the donor's widow. Really, when you think of it, to give other people life, um, it's such a marvellous thing. And um, it was wonderful for us to see the, the little boy who got Kevin's kidney and to hear his parents say how they had to go out and buy him a whole new wardrobe of clothes that he'd grown so much. And it, literally weeks, he just shot up and they didn't know him. He got so big and they showed us a photograph of him literally days before he had his operation. And you wouldn't believe it was the same child. And... Um, I, it's not easy to put aside your feelings of watching your loved one and and that, but um, I'd say to go ahead and to think of the life that they will be giving to others. To the transplant team, to Mr Jerry McGowan, the chief administrator, to Miss Betty McCluskey, the cardiac coordinator, and to the medical staff of the Matter Hospital, and indeed to all those who helped in the preparation of this programme, I send my sincere thanks. To all of them, this serves as a tribute. Well, every day I, I kind of, um, I'd say thank you for another day. Something that I never said before or never thought of before. But I'd always say it every morning when I'd wake up, well, I'd say thanks for another day. Um, I do no more nor no less than that. But I, I can't help but think how lucky I am that I got a, another chance. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.